0: Hello, and welcome to the Health in Europe podcast. I'm your host, Greg Bianchi. We've launched this podcast to bring you the latest on WHO's work in the European region. Our region is broad and diverse. From the Mid-Atlantic and stretching as far as the Chinese border, we work with fascinating and driven individuals and groups. This podcast is about hearing their stories and how they might impact your day-to-day life. Late in 2021, reports emerged of a new coronavirus variant. Now known as Omicron, this variant has seen cases rise dramatically in recent weeks. As the world watched and waited to see what this new variant might mean for the pandemic, coverage both online and in the media grew. Some of this coverage focused on Omicron being milder than other variants, with fewer people needing emergency medical care. But this has been accompanied by warnings of increased transmissibility, which places a burden on health systems that are already stretched. Today I speak with Dr Catherine Smallwood, WHO Europe's COVID-19 incident manager, about Omicron and how it's impacting the WHO European region. So, hi Katie, welcome.
1: Thank you and welcome to you too.
0: Thank you. So I'll just dive in with the first question, um, which has got quite a lot of coverage lately, is, um, and that's that quite a lot of discussion has focused on Omicron being milder than other variants. Is this actually the case?
1: So it's a really good question. There's been a lot of attention to it, but it's also really quite complex. And there's several things that we really kind of have to take into account. First of all, the virus itself and Omicron as it compares to Delta, but also to a lot of the other variants of COVID-19 that are circulating or have been previously circulating, including the wild type, which was the original variant um, that came from China and spread across the world. So in terms of the specific viral characteristics, what we're seeing right now, and and, um, the evidence is accruing around this, is that compared to the Delta variant, which we must all remember was more severe than the previously circulating variants, Omicron has a lower infection severity. And that corresponds to approximately, and this is still... um, Sort of the 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 evidence there is still accruing, but it's approximately fifty percent of a decrease in terms of the risk of hospitalisation. So yes, we can say that the virus itself is somewhat a degree less severe than the Delta variant, but it can still very much lead to hospitalisation. It can still very much lead to deaths, and we do have numbers of in both those categories, unfortunately. But then there's other considerations. So then it, we also need to ask ourselves, why is Omicron spreading so widely? And, and in what are the kind of immuno, immunologic profiles of the people um, that are spreading the virus? And we know that Omicron has a substantial ability to evade um, immune systems. So that means that a lot of people who have had COVID-19 before are getting it again. And a lot of people who have had the first and second and sometimes a third dose of vaccine are also getting it again. But those people are seeing much milder disease because despite the fact that the virus is able to evade their immunity in terms of infection, our immune systems, which is much more complex and uh, can recognize and has a memory, still protects those people from going on to have severe disease. So a lot, we're seeing a lot more cases, but most of those cases are milder because of our immune systems being better equipped. And then finally, um, we also need to, to take into account that we're very much in the early phases of this spread of Omicron. And initially, it was really spreading in two contexts, and those were combined generally quite young adults in their age of 20 to 30. Those are not the people who tend to be hospitalised. They can be, but not in large, large numbers. And they're not the ones that end up in critical condition and, and dying from COVID in general. But also we're seeing the early spread in countries that have this very high vaccination uptake, or in South Africa where there's been very significant waves of transmission, previous transmission through the population quite recently, Um, And that means those populations are generally better immunised and have more protection. So we still have yet to see Omicron spread in other parts of the world where the population might be more naive to the infection in terms of the immune, immune response. And so we might still see really severe outcomes in certain population groups.
0: And I think um, actually from the briefing today, I think the regional director touched upon that with the, the pandemic moving into into countries where there is, is lower vaccine coverage, as you say. But um, you've kind of already answered it slightly before, but, um, but what do we know how well the vaccines are doing? What do we know about, sorry, how well the vaccines are doing in protecting against severe disease and death from Omicron?
1: Yeah, so... I mean, that's exactly right. So in terms of vaccination, um, the the entire purpose of the vaccination campaigns, and we've said this from the very beginning, is that it protects people from ending up in hospital and dying from COVID-19. And so the wave of mild infections that we're seeing now is really testament to the success of these vaccination campaigns where they're happening. So if you look at the numbers, and here again, it's early data coming out from several countries that have the number of cases in hospital to be able to measure the actual effectiveness of the vaccine um, in people who are hospitalised. We're seeing, depending on the vaccine product, of course, there's a range, and the vaccines do have slightly different efficacy rates. But depending on the vaccine product, um, based on two doses, so the prime full primary series of vaccination between 65 and 80% vaccine effectiveness against hospitalisation. So that's still really good. And it shows that even without a booster dose, people remain really quite largely protected against hospitalisation with Omicron. Now, of course, there has been some waning in that um, immunity, and that's across all variants, and that might happen slightly faster with Omicron than with other variants, and we're still learning about that. Um, but we do know that with a booster dose as well, that protection goes up from already really good levels to over 90% protection against hospitalisation. Um, we don't know how long that will last. That will likely wane too. But the overall message is that the vaccines that we have um, are really good at protecting against severe disease. And that's really what's accounting for this really relatively mild uh, resurgence of COVID and unfortunately no vaccine is 100% effective and when you have a very very large number of cases there will be amongst those cases people who are hospitalized people who go on to have cri- severe critical disease and require intubation and ventilation support and some of those people will go on to die.
0: Okay and I mean we've we've spoken uh, mostly about Omicron here as well but obviously Towards the end of last year, the big focus was still very much on Delta. So um, now that Omicron seems to be increasing so dramatically, does that mean that Delta has gone away or is it, is it here to stay?
1: Not yet. It's, it's going away, um, at least in some parts of the region. And, um, and that will happen as Omicron spreads. Uh, I would say for the moment, a large proportion of the countries across Eastern Europe, Central Asia, are still predominantly seeing Delta circulate. They haven't yet had the high increase and the spread of Omicron, although that's very likely to happen. And that's also what the regional director highlighted today, that as it spreads, we're likely to see it characterized in a different way, depending on, on the context that where it's spreading. What we're seeing in Western Europe and in those countries that saw the early spread of Omicron is that it has very rapidly become dominant, and very rapidly is accounting for the majority of COVID-19 cases in a given population Uh, initially. And that's likely to be driven, in fact, by the um, dynamics of the population at that time. So in Western Europe, that actually tended to coincide with the end of the school period and the beginning of the Christmas holidays and the New Year holidays, which meant that initially it was spreading in 20- and 30-year-olds, Um, schools closed, so um, it wasn't spreading so much in children, and children were seeing much more Delta. But then over the Christmas holidays, families mingled, generations mingled, and now we're seeing those cases go up very sharply across all age groups, and that's what we would expect to see. And so we would tend to see that over time, Omicron will likely come to replace Delta um there may be pockets um of circulation of delta but it, it'll likely come to replace it in in a good proportion of the cases
0: okay and um kind of we were speaking a little bit earlier about you know how phenomenally effective the vaccines have been um since they've been rolled out and how how good they are at uh, yeah preventing severe illness and death in, in particular but um Given that uh, vaccination seems to be having such an impact on severe illness, um, but transmission, as you mentioned before, still occurs, um, how important is it that people continue to isolate if they test positive or if they're a close contact of someone who tests positive?
1: It's really important. Um, and and it's also really important that people do that quickly. Because we know from the data about COVID-19 um, uh, disease that we're most infectious around about the time where we develop symptoms. In fact, we're infectious up to 48 hours prior to onset of symptoms, so we can spread. And we've seen this, you know, in the past. And there's no significant change to what we think is happening in Omicron. We can spread the disease before we know it. We have it, know we have it ourselves. But also in those couple of days after onset of symptoms, um, and then our infectiousness tends to. Tail off, and it takes some time, but it does tail off quite quickly, and uh, and so people isolating quickly, even if they're waiting for their test result if they have symptoms, is really important, and equally, identifying cases, um, contacts of cases, sorry, is really important to be done quickly because that's where you can prevent those infections from happening prior to onset of symptoms, and all of this is about slowing the spread, preventing um, onwards transmission and breaking that cycle that's continuously happening. And, uh, of course, there's so many cases in the community right now that it's causing huge pressures on workforces. So, of course, it's still important to slow it down. Um, The faster the transmission happens, the more cases will be generated in a very short period of time. And that's what happens, that's what puts pressure on our critical services. When you have too many people off sick at any one time, it's not necessarily the severity, it's just the acuteness of, of that sh- workforce shortage, which, um, which is what we're seeing in some European countries now, where we can almost, from a public health perspective, tolerate or cope with a much higher infection rate in our population. But in terms of the broader societal impact that that's having and the disruption, that's something that's unprecedented at the moment. And we wouldn't have got to that because the public health impact previously in a non-vaccinated population would have been so severe that we wouldn't have been able to, to manage to, to, to keep things open and we would have had to have entered a lockdown. We don't need to do that anymore, but now there's a different problem. And, and that's really what we're seeing
0: and just as a follow up to that, I mean, um, we've seen a lot in in the media, particularly in governments, making decisions around particularly workforce to see uh, if they can shorten uh, lengths of uh, of isolation. What's WHO Europe's position on that, or what's our views on that rather?
1: Yeah, and that's 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 a really um, acute uh, present issue that countries are dra- grappling with, and and they're having to make dis- decisions based on balancing the risks and the benefits of shortening periods of both quarantine and isolation. So from our perspective as WHO, and we're very much a science-driven organisation and and looking at the evidence, there's no change in the science. It's the situation that is really demanding that certain adjustments uh, are made. And, And there's good reason for those adjustments to be made, and we would support that but only in that context where there are these critical pressures on essential services. In any other situation where those critical pressures are not causing disruption, we would still recommend that um, the quarantine period for a contact of a case is 14 days, which is the incubation period of COVID-19. That has not been... Um, adjusted by WHO at this stage and that for people who test positive as cases that the isolation period is 10 days including three and potentially in addition to that three days without any symptoms or without acute symptoms. There is room in WHO guidance for these adjustments to be made so um, already in WHO's recommendations for contact tracing We do say that in terms of increasing adherence and compliance with contact tracing um, and quarantine um, requirements, that a shortened period of quarantine can be taken into account. Um, And that's really balancing those risks and benefits, knowing exactly what the potential risk of onward spread might be. And the same goes for isolating patients who have tested positive, we do recommend that um, after the 10-day plus three without symptoms, um, patients can be released from isolation or cases who don't have um, any symptoms without the need for any test whatsoever. That's because sometimes with a PCR test, people can continue testing positive for quite some time. Um, However, those periods can also be shortened and we would also support that but we would want to see the inclusion of a, of a test potentially a rapid diagnostic test um, or a PCR test just to ensure that um, even with a shortened period of isolation patients are not still testing positive and going out into the community and infecting others and that's especially important for anyone who um, is potentially coming into contact with vulnerable populations in their in their day-to-day work or in their day-to-day life for example healthcare workers the worst thing that we could do is to release a healthcare worker from isolation and have them infectious providing care to vulnerable individuals who might not be vaccinated and who might go on to die from covid-19
0: Now, staying fit and eating a balanced diet are just two ways that we can stay healthy in our day-to-day lives. But with technological advances seeing people spend more of their days online, there's a concern about the potential health impacts on our digital lives. What's more, there's a growing discussion around the blending of the internet and virtual reality, sometimes termed the metaverse. But do we necessarily have to associate digital technologies with unhealthy habits? Last month, WHO's European Office for the Prevention and Control of NCDs, along with the Ministry of Health of the Russian Federation, hosted a conference on tackling non-communicable diseases with digital solutions. During the conference, WHO's Alexandra Olsen and Igor Khrushchev sat down with experts to find out some of the risks digital technologies pose to our health, but also how they may be used to promote healthy behaviours. Over to Alexandra and Igor.
2: Hi there. You're listening to a mini-podcast series from the WHO NCD office in Moscow. And this time, we're going to talk about how to stay healthy at a time when the internet and virtual reality are increasingly replacing face-to-face communication. Our hosts in the studio are Alexandra Olson and Igor Krychkov.
3: The COVID pandemic has taught us that digital technology can help us stay human, improve our mental health, and share how we feel. During lockdowns, the ability to communicate with family and friends online has helped hundreds of thousands of people maintain mental well being and peace of mind. For many children and young people, communication on social platforms or online games occupies a key place in their
2: lives. Today, supporters of innovation are talking more and more about the digital universe, or metaverse, an advanced form of online communication which, with the help of a virtual reality headset or other devices, can allow a person to almost completely immerse themselves in a virtual reality.
3: So how can we maintain and improve our health with these new digital tools? After all, life online is usually associated with a sedentary lifestyle and a less healthy diet. And these are serious risk factors for the development of non-communicable diseases, or NCDs, such as diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, and even cancer. NCDs account for more than 80% of premature deaths across the WHO European region, including Russia and the CIS countries.
2: But does living online necessarily have to be associated with risk factors for non-communicable diseases? Could we not create a safe environment in social networks and video games that prevents rather than provokes disease and promotes a healthy lifestyle? For example, according to recent studies, Some popular modern video games can be used as a tool to overcome mental disorders. Digital entertainment can also serve as a distraction for painful conditions, as well as support people in coping with chronic diseases.
3: Dr. Kremlin Vikramasinghe, acting head of the WHO European NCD office in Moscow, summarizes how digital technologies can help us tackle NCDs and build back better after COVID-19. We all know that our health systems are stretched during the COVID-19. A lot of colleagues working on prevention, NCDs are now spending more time on pandemic-related work and patients don't have the same capacity and opportunities to come in contact with the health systems and NCDs require more frequent regular interactions with health systems. So what digital solutions could do is provide that extra space and strengthen to uh, use our existing resources and give the maximum care and services to people living with NCDs but also through data and better connections to provide better information to make quick decisions and inform our policies. So we hope digital solution will be helpful for both prevention and management of non-communicable diseases. Although we're open to the opportunities the digital world provides, WHO is still concerned with the promotion of unhealthy products within the digital environment. Manufacturers of tobacco, alcohol and fast food actively use social networks and games to advertise their products. At the same time, advertising campaigns are often disguised as entertaining internet content or organically integrated into the gaming space. According to data, most junk food ads target children and teens. Tobin Ireland, Special Industry Advisor to the World Health Organization, explains how to get the most impact out of digital spaces. In order to have more impact, uh, governments and policy makers and the WHO need to uh, consolidate their voice a bit around uh, the, the requirements or the requests for the platforms to behave differently across all of the different health, uh, health programs, but also in the, in the larger construct of online harms, where health is just one important area where the platforms have a massive impact on the quality of life of, of children online.
2: To create a healthy environment online and in the field of digital entertainment, WHO recommends that countries pay special attention to policy grey areas, for example, where clear rules for advertisers have not yet been developed. In addition, specialists from the WHO European Office for the Prevention and Control of Non-Communicable Diseases have developed a special digital tool called Click that can track advertising of unhealthy products, including hidden ones.
3: A healthy digital environment in social networks, games, and the metaverse is, of course, an ambitious goal. However, as practice shows, internet users, and with them, the authorities of many countries in the WHO European region, are increasingly paying attention to the need to regulate this area of our lives. This theme was also in focus at the Moscow Digital for NCD conference, which was organised by the WHO European Office for NCDs, in collaboration with the Ministry of Health of Russian Federation on 14th-15th of December.
2: Other episodes can be found in the WHO playlist on all major podcast platforms. Stay tuned.
0: That's all we have time for. Special thanks to all our guests. If you want to find out more about any of the topics in this episode, you can do so on the WHO Europe website, that's euro.who.int, or check out the links in the show notes. The music during the second segment on the Metaverse is courtesy of Riot Games. Leave us a rating, and if you like what you've heard, make sure to recommend us to a friend or a colleague. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay safe and stay healthy.